Welcome to the Arcananth Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and this is the podcast all about people, about science, and the knowledge that scientists discover to better understand the relationships between humans and the world around us. Today, we have such a scientist with us, and her name is Jasmine Scarlett. Jasmine, are you there? Yes, hello. How are you, Jasmine? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing good here, although it's a bit of a dreary day in the Netherlands. Oh, uh, yeah, it's not looking good over here either. <laughs> How's it going so far this week? And where are you calling in from today? Yeah, it's going okay. I'll be doing a bit of teaching later, um, actually. And I'm calling in from uh, Newcastle. Newcastle. Is Newcastle where you are normally based? Uh, yes, it's where I teach uh, physical geography to undergraduate geography students. Mm-hmm. I understand that you specialize in studying volcanoes from a from a historical and social perspective but what are like all the different parts of physical geography besides that like where do you fit in for me it's uh the physical geography side of things is the 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 hazards that the volcanoes produce so it's um for me it's trying to understand how the volcanoes work and how the hazards work and how they behave particularly um in their environment so um so it's quite a lot of physics and mathematics involved to understanding how these uh, flows behave because understanding them you can then work out how actually people come into that picture when they come into the volcanic hazardous environment and it's that interaction between the two that I'm very mm-hmm. interested in. So it's been like, um, you know, since high school when I last did physical geography. And it was my, my understanding that the, the reason that the Netherlands or the UK, um, they don't experience as much volcanic activity is because we are not situated near um, like plate boundaries or any active volcanoes. Do I, do I have that understood like correctly in terms of where yes. volca- volcanoes are typically distributed? around the world? Yes, yes, that's correct. But uh, actually, originally, the Netherlands and the UK, once upon a time, did actually have volcanism. Um, but they're just all extinct uh, places now because um, the plate boundaries obviously moved and the mantle has moved about. So then, um, obviously, the weaker um, bits of the plate tectonics are, obviously, that's where the volcanism rises up. So our nearest, so like our nearest neighbour is Iceland. Mm-hmm. And that is an interesting place because that's not only on a mid-ocean um, ridge, so the plates are separating from North American and Eurasian plate, uh, but it's also actually where hotspot is as well. So that's why Iceland has very active volcanism because a lot of magma is coming up basically um, to the surface compared to not mm-hmm. much going on where we are today. Mm-hmm. So um, where are you right now in your academic career? Oh, uh, so I just actually passed uh, my PhD visa a couple of months ago now. So I'm a doctor, mm-hmm. um, but I uh, still need to do my corrections. So once that's done, then um, I'm, I guess, free to <laughs> <laughs> go on to whatever next. Um, but yeah, I'm just in a very, I'm very early career and I am in the process of starting to write up my papers and just carve and carve a path for myself really because I am uh, very interested in continuing to explore how people live with volcanoes in the past and the present Mm -hmm. Um, so I just have to wait and see what the future holds well first congratulations Thank you. <laughs> um, what were your sort of hypotheses or questions that you wanted to address in your PhD research? So I was looking at um, how the people 
um, on the Caribbean island of St. Vincent and the Grandes come to coexist with the active volcano La Cifrere. And my main question was, is how did the colonial society come to coexist with the volcano? Because the eruptions I looked at, which was in 1812, 1902 and uh, 1979, was during the colonial period where uh, they were a colony of uh, the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very, uh, from my perspective, it was interesting to see how that external influence had on decisions and uh, made and the responses and how actually they the, their land use in response to being on this volcanic island and just seeing how that progressed. Um, did it become negative or positive or positive negative? Like what were the similarities and differences between each eruption and did it get better? Did it get worse? Mm-hmm. For that, it was definitely something really uh interesting to explore and definitely something I want to continue exploring because obviously um, colonialism, European colonialism expanded about uh, 300, 500 years. There was loads of places that were colonized that had volcanoes and that did erupt during these times. So I'm very interested in to find out more because it's very interesting to see what the people that were originally there before European contact, how they did things compared to how um, that external influence actually transformed society and the relationship with the uh, volcanoes and mm-hmm. the hazards. So um, it was very interesting and very rewarding as well because my family's from St. Vincent, so it felt like I was learning more about my history as well, mm-hmm. as well as the history of the island and the volcano itself as well. Yeah. Can you give like a brief history of St. Vincent and the Grenadines? Okay, uh, I'll do my best. Mm -hmm. Uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines is used to be a place where indigenous populations uh, migrating from Venezuela would come and populate. So one group would come over and um, they would um, displace and absorb another a cultural um, indigenous group and they would populate the whole of the Lesser Antilles uh, volcanic arc and then it would be the Greater Antilles were inhabited by um, indigenous populations from Central America. So it's quite interesting, this little history of migration and absorption and uh, transforming our culture by displacing other groups. So for St. Vincent, um, it's around about 12,000 AD, mm-hmm. uh, we had the Kalinigo, so they were from Venezuela, and they uh, absorbed and displaced the, um, the previous um, indigenous group, the Arawaks. Mm. They were hunter-gatherers and had small plots of um, farmland, and they were very resilient to hurricanes um, and to weather-related hazards, because obviously in the Caribbean, that's definitely one of the main hazards. When it comes to the volcanoes, um, archaeology, we don't actually have mm-hmm. much evidence how they coped with it, but we know that um, from the archaeology it has been uncovered. Um, they actually lived away from the volcanoes. And for St. Vincent, they, there's, um, they lived in the south of the islands as the volcanoes in the north. And that's very interesting because um, La Sofrera is one of the most active volcanoes in the Caribbean, it uh, got more frequent eruptions compared to, say, Montserrat with Sufre Hills and Montpellier or Martinique. And what's interesting, the um, part of my research, I was just trying, trying to get background mm-hmm. knowledge on how this Kalinigo lived the volcano. And there's actually a 
French, uh, a Kalinigo to French um, translation dictionary of words. And when I was looking through this dictionary, it was quite interesting. They didn't actually have any words associated with the volcano or the volcanic hazards, but they had words for hurricane and flooding and landslides. And that's really intriguing for me. Um, and there is probably a little bit of evidence, although not confirmed, that actually it's because they viewed the volcano as a vengeful spirit. So um, they thought, let's stay away from the spirit that could actually kill us. Um, mm-hmm. But they didn't actually have any words in the dictionary to describe that. And I find that very interesting, the spirituality connected to that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, uh, sorry, this, this is going to be long. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and then it was around about the 1600s we have runaway slaves arriving on St. Vincent. Um, and these are runaway slaves that came from nearby St. Lucia and Barbados. And what happened is um, that the Canango actually um, uh, took them in. They actually uh, gave them a place to stay and to live. And this is where we get a merging of cultures. So we get a merging of African culture and Kalungo culture. And this group actually became what we call today the Guafana. And the Guafana, um, they were more uh, territorial. And when it came to colonists trying to colonize St. Vincent, they were uh, more resistant to this and they would fight back. Um, and this uh, tension between British colonists and the Guafana um, led to two um, short wars, the first Carib War and the second Carib War in the mid to late 1700s. And this was because actually of the fertile volcanic soil, because the colonists realised for them to have uh, more productive sugar plantations, they had to go near the volcano where the fertile soil is. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting because when uh, the island was in control by the British, they uh, pushed the Kalinga and the Gulfana to the north, near to the volcano, and they stayed in the south. But then they realised, oh, actually, we need to be in the north because that's where fertile soil is. Um, and in the end, this resulted in the Gulfana being exiled to present-day Honduras. And actually, descendants of the Gulfana now live all across Central America. Mm-hmm. And so then we have a recorded eruption in 1718, but at that time there wasn't any colonists on the island. Um, so that we say with that, with that volcanic eruption, we know it happened, but we don't know what exactly happened. How, how do we know that it happened in 1718? Uh, we got some um, sort of like dubious reports and there's like a story written by uh, a, a British chap named William Defoe and if you read that passage it reads very similar to the story of Atlantis. That's why we're like, mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's very strange uh, little story and I think as well it's because actually in that area it was reported by the French and of course the British were like, oh we're not going to believe what the French are going to say. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> So that's how we know it happened, but we don't know exactly what happened on the island. We don't know what hazards happened. We don't know how the uh, Kalinigo and the Guafana responded to that eruption. And the geological record is poorly preserved, so we can't really get much of a picture uh, of what happened. At the end of the 1700s, we have strong occupation of the British, and it was a sugar plantation economy for a very long time. Um, and then post-emancipation in the 1830s, um, 
the former slaves didn't want to work um, on the plantations anymore. So then there was actually an influx of indentured servants from Portugal and India. Mm-hmm. The melting pot of cultures comes in that we have India and Portugal and then we have African cultures and uh, indigenous Kalingo culture and, of course, European British culture. So this is what makes it interesting from my perspective as a social volcanologist that we have all these cultures interacting now or with a volcano that essentially is new to them, mm-hmm. apart from the Kalilingo, of course. Now, how do they come to coexist with basically entering a new environment? Um, so then that's why I chronicled 1812, because that's where we have best records of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, what do these uh, records look like? Most of them are written governmental correspondence between the colonial government and the colonial office um, in London. So it's the governor and the councillors writing to the Windward Island administrator and to the clearing office of what's happening and um, what damages were produced um, and what's the state of the economy and of the economy. Because, um, of course, there, uh, particularly for 1812, it was that the sugar was definitely the demand for the British Empire. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was that. Um, there are a smaller number of accounts by individuals who wrote diaries and letters and actually most of these were written to British newspapers. So I use the British newspaper archive quite a lot to piece together these eruptions, mm-hmm. particularly 1812, 1902. Um, but by 1902, which was really exciting, is that we have photographs. So I used quite a lot of photos from 1902, black and white photographs, and just seeing the landscape um, of how much damage was caused, and how much damage was caused to the nearby villages and towns. Um, and to see the what were people doing, because there was quite a lot of displaced people in 1902, around about 1,300 people died. Um, mm-hmm. And lots of people were evacuated south of the island. So there's actually some pictures of people cleaning their clothes and cooking and everything. And that's quite um, very exciting for me. And for 1979, because it's still in living memory, um, I have to add to that um, archive, I actually mm-hmm. did interviews. Um, so I went around about um, all across the island because I wanted to see how uh, different people uh, responded to the same events depending on where they were. We call this the mismatch effect and that is essentially that um, depending on where you are in the location you will experience the same event differently. What does it look like at a household level depending on where you were for the disruption or what happened? Um, and yeah, it was just very interesting, just the stories they told and even the, the, the written accounts for the early eruptions, they're very romantic and very fluffy and very descriptive and <laughs> I kind of like <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> and it's a shame that we kind of lost that kind of way of writing, that imaginative romantic way of writing. And yeah, it, it was very um, fascinating. And uh, of course, because it was during colonialism for the 1812 and 1902 eruptions, it was quite racist as well so that forms one of my arguments as well of how they come to coexist with the volcano it's more that actually it's quite a lot of um underpinning um negative issues that were brought to light because of this eruption um mm-hmm. so for me it was interesting to try and work out the differences of depending on your social status what actually happened to you because of that eruption and the decisions made by those in power 
um, of what happened to everybody else. Right. <clears throat> Can you give an example of uh, someone that you interviewed who sort of described for you what their experience of volcano activity was like for them? Yes. So um, uh, I interviewed a, a woman. Uh, she was in her 50s. So she was, well, she was quite young um, when this eruption happened. Um, but uh, she's actually a Gufana. So there is a small population of Gufana still on the island. So um, this woman was living in a village quite close to the volcano. And she told me that what's interesting about the 1970 eruptions is it happened on Good Friday. And the uh, island is quite religious and very devoted to um, Christianity events. So she says so she was up early um, preparing the Good Friday feast and her children were up helping as well and her husband was up um, helping as well. She asked her children to go fetch water from the local well. And what happened was that uh, sometime afterwards, her, her kids came back panicking, saying, Mom, Mom, what is this? What is this? And, and she was saying that on there, they had white shirts on and you see blotches of ash on it. Mm-hmm. And of course, they didn't, obviously, they were kids, they didn't understand what it was. But it was interesting for this one. She was like, I know what that is because my grandmother told me. So, what happened was actually her grandmother told her about the previous eruption in 1902. So, for her and her family, they were more prepared because they actually had stories mm-hmm. the previous eruption told them. So, she was able to say, I know what that is, that's volcanic ash from Sofre. So what happened was she uh, managed to find her husband who was out uh, getting some stuff for the feast and they had a water tank because they collect rainwater. So they made sure that was all covered so that they didn't get contaminated by the ash. And they also had a little fishing boat. So they covered that to make sure the ash didn't rust the bolts and the workings of the of the boat. And they actually then managed to catch a ride from a nearby person who had a car and they actually... Um, managed to evacuate down to the capital of Kingstown, which is in the south of the island. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really interesting because other people, I, uh, other Gurufan I interviewed had, had said that, oh, my grandmother, my grandfather, um, they told me about the previous eruption in 1902. But then I compared that to interviews I did in the south of the island. They didn't actually say that they had that experience. They didn't have someone telling them what happened before. Mm-hmm. So, it was quite interesting, even though they were south of the island, more safe of the island, they were definitely more worried compared to those closer to the volcano who had those stories. So, for example, I, there was a man I interviewed. He was a teenager at the time of the eruption. I think he said he was in school. He saw the ash plume and he was like, what is going on? Am I being punished by God? Very interesting reaction. And actually... He can explain that by by the social research that um, with hazards, it's that when people don't have that uh, scientific knowledge, they usually fall back to religion or to something else to help them conceptualize what's going on mm-hmm. and what's happening. So for this for this man, he was like, "Is this God's doing this?" You know, in that split second that he was like what is going on? I don't know what this is. Is this God? And yet it's just very interesting that each person I spoke to, I spoke to about 16 people and each story was different, um, even though some of them were in the same place, but their experiences were so different. And that's very fascinating and definitely something that you have to pay attention to in social volcanology when you try and 
find ways to uh, help people prepare and to respond to these eruptions because everyone will react differently. Mm -hmm. When the eruption last happened, did that mean that maybe like their homes were destroyed in any way or their communities were affected quite seriously? Uh, So in the last eruption, no one died. So that's a good thing. Um, but we do have, there were photographs and reports that some roofs uh, of houses collapsed that were close to the volcano. And this is quite common in volcanic corruptions, especially when loads of ash is produced. It's, it's called ash loading. So basically, it's just loads of ash keep piling onto the roof. And if no one's around, to, uh, if no one's around or it can't uh, be removed somehow, then it will just, uh, the weight of it will actually collapse the roof. Um, and that's how it actually can cause deaths because people might hide in a building. But if the ashes mm-hmm. keep on piling on, it can actually um, collapse and cause people to get injured. Right. So there was reports of that, but mainly the difference between 1979 and the later eruptions is that this eruption was actually a smaller in magnitude. So it was a VEI-3. So VEI stands for the Volcanic Explosivity Index. So in 1979, it was a 3. In 1812 and 1992, it was a 4. And volcanology terms, a 4 is actually quite small. It goes up to 8. But a 4 for a small island like St. Vincent, it was actually quite big. So uh, the whole island is always impacted. And in fact, even nearby islands, so Barbados always used to get ashfall mm-hmm. from La Sofra. Um, and so does St. Lucia, although it does depend on the wind direction. It's like, so the best, usually the best thing to do is to be evacuated and go to uh, somewhere uh, further away from the volcano and find safer shelter. Yes. Yeah, that is definitely the the best important step um, when you have a volcanic crisis on your hands and you would most likely be okay. Mm-hmm. After this all happens, what are the steps to rebuild and like resettle? That's a good question. Um, so it depends. The most common thing is people going back to clean up and to just check on their properties and see if everything's okay. Of course, it does depend on where you are and what the eruption is like. And of course, it depends on the volcano. But usually the first step, particularly at a household level, is to clean up your property, essentially, and to replace what is lost. Mm-hmm. It's usually a rebuilding effort, and it is usually a local effort. It's usually a community-level uh, response. But when there is more expensive stuff that needs to be replaced, that's when most likely you'll get help from local authorities, the government, and even get a relief from foreign aid. This is definitely where the politics start to murk the waters a bit about of who can be helped. Um, and this is definitely what I found in my research, that if you have that influence, you get the help quicker and more substantial. Mm-hmm. But it's usually just rebuilding and then just try and get back to daily life as soon as possible. And that's pretty much what the mindset of people have is like, right, let's get back to what it was like beforehand, mm-hmm. even though it never truly is the way it would be um, before an eruption because your life is still impacted and changed um, in a way. And you might start to think about uh, different things because you might think, oh, what, hap- what, what if it happens again? What, what should I do differently? Mm-hmm. So that's usually where research comes in it's usually where the scientists come in and where these projects come in to be like okay so how can we help 
prepare for the next time because there might be a next time. Make sure that we minimize damage and uh, minimize right. loss. Why, why do people choose to live near these hazardous locations or maybe why do they choose to leave? Because of the fertile soil. So many volcanic locations, there's usually quite a strong agricultural sector. Uh, it's mainly because of the fertile soil. And it's, it's usually down to uh, the, the, the benefits outweigh the costs and they're willing to take that risk. Um, so it's usually a short-term thinking. But in places like St. Vincent, sometimes you don't really have a choice. Uh, mm-hmm. So like, like I mentioned earlier, the, the Kalinga and Gufana were pushed closer to the volcano once um, Conlis settled the island. Um, whereas archaeological evidence uh, suggests that actually they consciously lived away from the volcano because they knew it was dangerous. Sometimes as well, if you want to move, sometimes you can't because for one, you have an attachment to the place. So there's a sense of place. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have money to go. You don't have um, any, you don't know anybody in uh, in the new location. So you're more reluctant to go. Um, you're more, yeah, you're more reluctant to take that risk. And it, it could be because you're poor of health, so you can't just go anywhere where you want to. And usually there isn't enough space to move someone elsewhere. Usually there's just, there's no choice. You have to live there because there is no space to go elsewhere. Um, usually, but obviously in, in bigger locations like the uh, US, for example, mm-hmm. you can move because there is more space elsewhere. But again, it's that people have that strong attachment to the place they live that sometimes it's more reluctant to leave. Um, but then there's other hidden cultural factors like there's right. like you appreciate the scenery and it brings in tourism. So it brings in the money. Um, it's religious and spiritual uh, values attached to it. Um, educational values. So there's loads of reasons why people live in these areas and Mostly it's because of the natural resources that volcanoes provide. Right. I have a question from a patron of the podcast, uh, Christy, and she wanted to ask you, like, what did your research show in terms of, um, you know, human adaptability or like um, community resilience while living in these locations? Ah, also a good question. Um, So what I found is for human adaptation, it's, Definitely a long process. <laughs> um, so um, mm-hmm. one of my arguments was that because of the indigenous population was either exiled or silenced, that knowledge, that indigenous knowledge that they had of the volcano was lost and was not utilised by the 1812 eruption. They had to learn again how to live with the volcano, essentially. But what I found was um, there was definitely more of an economic resilience compared to more of a social resilience. So uh, for each eruption, we have examples of um, people selling land and then buying other land elsewhere. So the land that was damaged, they would get seek compensation or sell it and then buy land elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Or um, they would seek a land tax exemption. Um, for a number of years. This was particularly for 1902. Uh, quite a lot of um, plantation owners managed to be exempt from land tax. Um, but of course, again, because of the racism, the um, 
small holder farmers who were descendants of the slaves, they didn't get really much uh, leeway with their exemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, for 1979, there was a lot of, because obviously it moved away from the plantation monoculture, it had more of um, cash crop industries actually invest in uh, more tools and the seeds and the money for them to get back on their feet to plant again for the next season but then there's other little social things so there's mm-hmm. i have an example in note you know two of actually uh villagers moving these movable huts so we have a, vi- oh, a village comes together to move their huts from one location to another i actually have a photograph of it as well it's really it's really fascinating just see them all coming together to move their houses mm-hmm. away from the volcano. Um, but, um, and there's also, what's interesting um, is actually there's a wider community resilience. So um, what's interesting for each eruption is that we actually have the other um, British West Indies uh, colonies actually coming together to help mm-hmm. St. Vincent. So for each eruption, it was mainly in financial assistance so we have Barbados, Jamaica, uh, St. Lucia, basically all the other uh, British West Indies colonies they would actually provide financial um, aid to uh, be used to um, recover from the event and actually we still see that today that um, for like the previous hurricane seasons um, Mm -hmm. people like um, came together to help provide financial assistance to Dominica um, and even I actually have personal experience when there was a, a hurricane that actually struck um, St. Vincent in, t- in 2010 called um, Hurricane Thomas. We actually had a little, uh, little uh, sort of like a little party, charity party. Um, and we like raised funds to send to send to St. Vincent. Hmm. Um, so like, that's, that's interesting. I, I call that um, the kingship, even though kingship is usually associated with community level um, and like between families and blood kin and those, um, you know, who have the trust established. But actually because of the common history between the Caribbean islands and that they were colonies of Britain, of Britain they actually have that bond that that and that understanding that we can come together to help one another because we are essentially brothers and sisters sort of thing that's what it kind of is um so it's quite interesting how it's like a local level to a regional wide um resilience really yeah you mentioned the um various like hurricanes uh is there like a relationship between the volcanic activity and the other categories of natural disaster? Um, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what is interesting relationship is that if you get a volcanic corruption and then the rainy season happening, that actually does exacerbate the uh, one type of hazard called lahars. So lahars are basically volcanic mud flows. And what happens um, if it's happened after an eruption? Basically, the a hurricane or just really um, wet weather will just remobilize the volcanic material and generate a mud flow. Um, so there's it kind of causes like a cascading hazard effect, um, but it all it, it just depends on the timing of the eruption and the mm-hmm. hurricane or other uh, hazardous events. There's not really there's there's no direct correlation between one cause right. and the other. 
Um, I know that, uh, so we're speaking in a week where Greta Thunberg is going around America and speaking with the UN about how important it is to listen to scientists who are studying uh, weather and climate and environment. I was wondering, like, what are your thoughts on this uh, movement where lots of people have uh, gathered all around the world recently in millions trying to uh, tell governments that they need to listen to scientists? I think it should have happened way sooner. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that, uh, that obviously there has been many people and teenagers and younger before Greta that have been campaigning, uh, you know, for change to happen because they are seeing these effects now. So uh, even in the Caribbean, we're seeing the effects of climate change now, not just with hurricanes, but we've actually with sea level rise. And um, if we think about all other islands, they're actually the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change happening from um, these larger, more wealthier countries. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are actually causing the damage. So I think we need to keep the momentum going and and like... We scientists, we don't do this for personal gain. We all do the research we're doing to help others. And that's the reason why I became a historical and social biologist. It was because I want to help people in St. Vincent and then hopefully in the future, other people on other islands. Because for me, I see them as the most vulnerable because there's not a lot of land and the sea can easily um, take away more land from them. Um, so... We definitely need to keep the momentum and because it obviously is the politicians that have the most power to make those changes, they do need to listen and they shouldn't be afraid to listen. And mm-hmm. and I think they need to just don't be afraid to own up to your mistakes of yourselves and your predecessors. It's okay to be like, okay, sorry, we messed up. We need to change this. I mean, mm-hmm. like I'm the first person, if I make a mistake, I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. I'll make sure I do better. Um, but we are on a uh, we're on a ticking clock, and as long we just need them to just get over their egos and just you know help you know the planet that we only have yeah. to live on. I, I I hope that Greta and others keep the momentum going, and of course I will help where I can, and I'll continue the research um, where I can to to show how much of an impact we have on the planet and. Hopefully, hopefully we can make things better sooner rather than mm. later. Is, is there a relationship between climate change that's happening, you know, exacerbated <laughs> right now and uh, volcanic activity, the amount or the magnitude of volcanic activity? I think our evidence on that is not great to know for certain. Um, but we could say, for example, volcanoes that are ice capped. Um, so if we think about the volcanoes in Iceland, they have glaciers on them. Mm-hmm. Could say that maybe, yeah, that could actually have an impact because obviously we in, in increasing the the temperature, so therefore we're going to get more ice melt. Therefore, we might actually see more lahars, or mm-hmm. or it might um, be like what um, eustatic and isostatic changes. So we might actually see some. Um, obviously some rebound of the earth so therefore maybe uh, that might actually affect where the magma chamber is uh, for example but of course we don't really have that kind of evidence because this is obviously happening now whereas obviously volcanologists we're more 
we're sort of like forensic scientists of the earth, essentially. Mm-hmm. So we're piecing together what's happened in the past um, from the geological record and the written record. So we can't really correlate very well with what's happening with climate change now because, of course, you know, not every volcano can erupt when you want it to, to do this research. <laughs> so right. um, it's uncertain and we, we're not sure, but there probably is, if it's weather related, and it might actually cause a cascading hazard effect. Do you think that the human experience of volcanoes will be different in like other contexts, like in the um, Pacific or in the Southern Hemisphere, in the Arctic? Yeah, yeah. I mean, every every society is different, and it definitely um, is uh, the, the 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 geoculture. So how people culturally respond to these events. Um, it does it will be different because of course the volcanoes each volcano is different as well so we have our we start to build up our own social memory and our own environmental memory of how how these volcanoes behave Mm -hmm. and it is that if we have external influences like for example colonialism changing that um of course then that also changes um how we respond and live with them because um that knowledge is either taken away or manipulated some way. So it is all down to our own experiences and knowledge and living in these environments that makes our ex- each experience different depending on where you are in the world. Mm-hmm. I know that recently you also um, co-authored this paper and it was all about uh, something called the dark, <laughs> the dark geocultural heritage of volcano. Yes. And I was wondering if you could explain, you know, what contribution you wanted to make with this paper, uh, like what was what was missing before in terms of how we viewed geological sites and heritage. Yeah, so um with that paper, we wanted to try and find ways to combine cultural heritage and geoheritage more closely with volcanoes. Um because we see that both are very important to our understanding and our knowledge of volcanoes and how we live with them. Um, but in most cases, it's not, they don't in, interact or interlink with one another. So we use this notion of dark heritage to try and bring them all closer together. So dark heritage is essentially uh, sites of human trauma and places that have been destroyed and the surrounding communities and survivors inheriting that. So we thought, well, actually mm-hmm. volcanoes are probably very classic dark heritage examples. So that's why we focused on four volcanoes that have that dark heritage, but not necessarily associated with the volcano as well. So for obviously for for the two Caribbean volcanoes I focused on, which is Sufra Hills and Les Sufra, um, on Montserrat St. Vincent, I focused on the colonial and slavery at dark heritage, because then that also links to cultural heritage, which is actually profitable for tourism. So dark heritage when it comes to slavery is actually being exploited for tourism in other Caribbean islands. Mm-hmm. Other dark heritage, so for example, uh, Vesuvius and Pompeii, we did talk about the destruction of Pompeii and the dark heritage of that. And then we also look at the Lacasse, which is the uh, last caldera forming eruption on continental Europe, which happened near the end of last age. And that severely impacted the hunter-gatherer networks in Europe. And we focused on how that disruption to the social network of the hunter-gatherers is actually dark heritage because that may have actually essentially changed 
how certain hunter-gatherer groups evolved um, as societies. And we wanted to try and put across that mm-hmm. even though dark heritage is usually uncomfortable and unwanted, we can find ways to actually utilize it to help us educate tourists and ourselves of the potential of these volcanoes and what it can teach us about maybe the future of what if we had similar situations Mm -hmm. happening again. I think also like it probably helps, um, you know, the more knowledge that we have, the more scientific knowledge and um, knowledge about our history and our heritage probably helps people feel uh, more at ease about the risks in the future. So like it helps actually their sort of sense of uh, safety and uh, knowing that they they have um, lessons to learn from history uh, and so that they can take precautions and probably helps their mental health. Yeah, it's interesting why people go visit these sites. So yeah, one of those would be to actually, oh, okay, let's learn from this. Let's learn from lessons in the past so we don't make sure this happens in the in future. Um, so for example, um, dark heritage sites in Europe, the ones that are most popular are the ones associated with World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and like Auschwitz is the most popular dark heritage site in Europe. So it's like we can learn from that. We can make sure this doesn't happen again. Although, of course, we could argue, are we actually listening to lessons learned from last time? But that's obviously another conversation. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it's if we, if we keep a mountainous knowledge, we keep our understanding going, then yeah, then maybe we can be more prepared of what's to come, whatever is to come. Yeah. Were you certain that you would become a scientist when you were younger or did the field find you, let's say? I'd say a bit of both. So uh, I was always really interested in geography and in natural hazards. Um, So I did it in school uh, and I did it for my undergraduate and for my master's. So I always had that that passion to do that um, sort of research and to learn about it. Uh, But the volcanology side did kind of find me because it was essentially talking to my family about the volcano in St. Vincent. Um, so like when I was starting my masters, uh, I did ask my mum, I was like, oh, like I know, I know granddad's from St. Vincent. Do you think he would talk to me about it? Yeah. That's what I, that's essentially how it happened. How I was like, actually, I want to, I want to learn more about La Sofrere. And then I want to learn more about how people live with volcanoes because these stories are awesome and I want to learn more and I want to help in some way. So it kind of is a merge of both really. Mm-hmm. Like the other week, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my my boyfriend and I, we were watching The Impossible, which is about the tsunami that hit Phuket in 2004, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ewan McGregor and Naomi Watts have to save their boys. Um, <laughs> but um, and I was wondering, like, if, if you got a big Hollywood budget to, you know, write a movie and direct a movie about, oh, no. about you know, geological processes and, and this sort of um, disaster, what would you want to see out of a film like that? Okay, well, um, I have big issues <laughs> of um, what is portrayed in film mm-hmm. and on TV. So mine would be very dry and boring because <laughs> 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 I always want mine to be very factual. So, yeah, like, and it would be kind of depressing as well. Yeah. <laughs> <'Cause>, um, <laughs> So, like, for example, you get the, the people running away from these things and, like, driving away from these things. The most hazardous thing a volcano can produce is a pyroclastic density current. And these um, hot ash flows or avalanches are 
they they can travel as fast as 300 miles per hour. Right. There's no way a teenager's bike is going to outrun. No, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like you, you would, you would be dead. Uh, <laughs> that'd be the end of the movie. I think <laughs> like, um, so mine would be very dry, but I would, for me, I wouldn't want it to be factual. And if, and also it depends on the volcano, not every volcano produces all the hazards, um, or even produces the one that we see on film. So, Classic example, we see the the very runny lava um, in movies, yeah. uh, the hoi hoi, that's what we call it. I think that's uh, what Chris Pratt uh, rolls away from in Jurassic World. Yeah, um, no, no. That's, <laughs> so that, that's a very fast flowing one and it's still very hot. So mm-hmm. uh, I have issues with that. Because- the, the other one I, I really uh, love, I think it's in um, like Tommy Lee Jones's volcano is like when, oh God, yeah. when, when the couple, when the couple is in like a hot spring and then it, it, <laughs> it boils. Down oh my God, that movie's amazing. Uh, Cause it's so terrible. <laughs> okay. So, so you would want one very um, probably focused on the scientists trying yes. to save people. Um, all the population would be evacuated away Yes. Um, and uh, in any case, under under shelter, safe shelter. Yep. Okay. <laughs> no, no bombing it nope. either. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just let it do its thing. Obviously, keep it monitored. Keep monitored, especially if there's lava flows. You definitely want to see if it's going to change direction anyway, because then you might have to move other people out the way. You can, if you have the money, you can try to divert the flows. So we have examples. In Italy, for example, where they actually put in concrete barriers to change the direction of the lava flow. Sometimes that's successful, sometimes it's not. But mm-hmm. also, I would focus with the scientists. I wouldn't focus on the love story. Right. The love story between the scientists and their science. Yes. that Oh, that would be great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also about how actually stressful those situations are and how critical every decision is. Um because one mistake could result in people dying or a, pro- or a critical infrastructure being destroyed. So there's actually quite a lot of pressure on people involved in these crises to make sure they know what they're doing mm-hmm. and to make sure it's conferred uh, through the chain of command. And that's usually where volcanic crisis turns into a disaster. It's usually uh, the chain of command fails and the communication between certain uh, personnel is lost in translation and that's usually where things go wrong Mm -hmm. people don't actually run like people do in the disaster movies people it's it's a classic disaster myth that you get panic um people actually respond quite logically in these situations um and quite calmly but of course it's a a myth that is perpetrated even Mm -hmm. in the media today um, and even looting is actually a disaster myth. It doesn't actually mm-hmm. really happen. In the cases it does, it's usually the person whose house is destroyed going back to get their things. Right. So I would make sure I exclude any disaster myths as well. Mm-hmm. And also we'll try and focus on the positives because you can get positives. So for example, you get social cohesion happening during these crises and after. You get people coming together that are probably strangers helping one another. Mm-hmm. We actually bounce back from these things quite well, um, and we are we we are people that can come together to help. But usually, when things are going really wrong, mm-hmm. this has been 
fantastic. I really enjoyed learning about your work. What are your upcoming plans in terms of like where you want to take your work in the future? I want to explore the politics of disasters a little bit more because from just my work, I found how much of an influence politics actually has on the outcome of disaster events. So I want to actually explore that more. Mm -hmm. I actually also actually have a project just starting about the mental health impacts of people who communicate about um, risk. So getting their experiences of a time when their mental health was impacted and trying to find ways to you know, help minimise, mitigate and to recover from these stressful situations. Mm-hmm. So I have that going. And also I want to do something similar to what I did for my PhD, but for another location. I'm very particularly interested in Indonesia um, because they they live with them so well, mm-hmm. the volcanoes. So I was just like, I want to see positive ways how people live with these volcanoes, particularly because Indonesia as well was colonised as well. So I'm very interested to see how do they retain their their own individual cultures to mm-hmm. live with these volcanoes, teach and inspire the next generation. Um, where are you sharing your PhD results from? Have you gone back to St. Vincent yet to present it to the people that you worked with? Um, that will, that's on uh, the back burner. I don't actually have the money to go yet. Um, <laughs> right. But it's definitely a plan I want to do uh, in the future. So I'll be sharing it with the Volcano Observatory, with the Emergency Management um, Organization, and also the Ministry of Agriculture, since quite a bit of chunk of my work was to do with agriculture. So I think it's very important to share them mm-hmm. but i am helping behind the scenes with small bits at the moment sounds great is there somewhere online people can follow you and your work going forward so i'm on twitter probably too much but my twitter is at scarlet underscore jasmine and i also have a blog uh, which is phdvolcanology.wordpress.com um, and i talk about my research and also i'm started a little fun little project where I look at volcanoes in video games so you can find out more about that if you like. Excellent. Um, and can you come up with a hashtag for this episode? Oh, no. Um, ooh, hashtag social volcanology. How about that? Okay, yeah. Hashtag social volcanology. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> excellent okay well thank you listeners for hearing this episode if you want to leave us feedback then you can do that on itunes or even on our facebook page the podcast you can find on facebook twitter instagram and reddit and also if you want to subscribe and download more episodes then go to itunes spotify stitcher where you can do so if you want to support the show then definitely go on patreon.com slash pod and there you'll see a variety of options for supporting the show All of that information you can find at arcananth.com. Jasmine, thank you so much for being a guest on today's episode. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Okay, so listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye.